Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for supporting the show. If you want to check us out on all of our social media platforms, check us out on Twitter at Tinfoil Hat Cast. On Instagram at Tinfoil Hat Pod. Uh, you can find us on Reddit. Uh, it's reddit.com backslash r backslash Tinfoil Hat Show. Or all comedy t shirts.com. If you have any suggestions for future guests or topics, go ahead and email us at tinfoilhatpod at gmail.com. Welcome back to another episode of Tinfoil Hat. Come with me into the waters of conspiracy with Sam Tripoli. Sam Tripoli. Tripoli. Sam Tripoli. Mr. Sam Tripoli. With my friend Ryan Davis. What the fuck are you guys even talking about? Are you ready to get your mind blown? Revolution will be podcasted. And welcome to another very special episode of Tim Foil Hat. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, we really appreciate all your support. You guys have been fucking really loving the show, and we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, real quick, let me get through the dates out of the gates because i got a very busy schedule coming up, and then I'm going to bring in our guest. Uh, Texas, I'm a coming. I am coming with the Social Justice Warriors. We will be in San Antonio Thursday, December 14th at the Blind Tiger. San Marcos, Friday, December 15th at Aquabrew. Houston, September December 16th, this Saturday at the Seeker Group, and Austin, Sunday, December 17th at the Cap City Comedy Club. Then I have the Comedy Chaos Show live at the Comedy Store. It is the final Comedy Chaos of the month, of the year 2017. The lineup is killer. Burt Kreischer, Joe Rogan, Anthony Jeselnik, Brandon Schaub, Jessime Peluso, and Tony Rock. And then the Naughty Show is December 22nd at Harvell's. We have Penthouse Pets. We have Penthouse Pets, Jaden Cole and Brett Rossi. And then we have comedians Jerry Rocha, Jackie Fabulous, Eric Schwartz, Greg, uh, George Perez, Kate Quigley, and Jason Rouse. And we are giving away toys thanks to Topco. Those tickets are at HarvellsLongBeach.com. And then Tampa, I am New Year's Eve. I am at the Tampa Improv. So holla at your boy, Tampa. You know I'm. it's my favorite city to gig in. I hope to see you all in and come with me to bring in a brand new New Year. Uh, guys, how are you? Ryan. Very good, Sam. You know who we are. You know what we're here to do. Thank you guys for your support. Our numbers keep growing. We've had one of our best weeks yet, and it's all because you guys support us and you spread the word. And today, this we're on all things comedy, but I don't know if today is going to be a comedy episode. Uh, this is a very serious episode. The guy we're about to interview is a very brave man to come out and tell his story. We always ask, we always get asked, no matter where we go on, why isn't there anyone coming forward? Well, we have the man right now. 
Uh, do you want to get into who our guest is, Ryan? Yeah, allegations of sex abuse that began with Harvey Weinstein on the West Coast has shifted towards the facets of the political and economic media spheres of the U.S. Eastern Seaboard. A surge in public willingness to come to terms with the stark reality of abuse executed by members of the establishment suggests that a time is to re-examine the testimony of survivors who have previously come forward of these allegations. And one of those survivors is today's guest. Please help me welcome Greg Butrioni. Greg, welcome to the show. Did hey, I, guys. Did I butcher your name, Greg? No, we got right, right? Or did we kill it? Did we crush That's it? Right. You guys could kill it. Butcheroni. Thank you, Greg, for coming on, and thank you for being so uh, brave enough to tell your story. Uh, we've seen you on Dr. Phil, and I've seen ever since the disobedient media, disobedient media article came out, you've been popping all over the place, and we're super thankful for that. And, uh, man... What has your life been like lately since this article come out? Have you been getting hit up a lot? Has uh, has the world finally heard your story? Um, I mean, I, I I kind of been since 2011. I've been talking about this, and you know, it, it, it kind of comes in waves. Some people don't believe it. Uh, you know, they don't believe that uh, there's sex child sex rings out there that are involved with different uh, individuals. So, you know. You have a lot of people that are what I, I consider Monday morning quarterbacks, meaning they live in their little white world and they're not used to poverty, crime, this type of behavior involving children. So they can't understand it because the world they live in is this isn't like the world I lived in in Philadelphia and poverty and high crime neighborhoods and the world that they live in some white picket fence in the suburbs is two different realities. So they can't understand how this could happen to children. And then for so long, authorities would kind of turn a blind eye to it. Very interesting. Now, Greg, I understand if it, this is the best position you put the camera, but the, your steering wheel is blocking us from seeing you. And I just want to make sure that our, our fans can see your, your beautiful face, my friend, because uh, I think. Uh, what, what about now? Now you look perfect, dog. You're perfect. You're looking good. Um, Steering yeah, yeah, we want to see who you are. Now, the real quick, uh, why do you think people are so resistant to believing your story? Because, uh, you know, we talk about this all the time on the show, like whistleblowers and people who come out with the truth. It is a very dangerous thing to do. It, and it, it is like it is a rough thing to do because there is so much backlash and pushback. Why do you think people can't... Well, especially now when we see this whole Rob Moore thing going on and everybody is politicizing pedophilia and we're like, if I accuse your, the other side of doing it, you're like, yeah, totally, but I accuse your side of doing it, not you, but if whoever it is. Um, yeah. They get so defensive and they can't believe it, even though they don't know these people. Why do you think there's such a pushback on people like you who... I don't know why you come out and lie about it. There's, there's fame and there's infamy... And I don't know why you would want this kind of energy at you if you weren't just trying to help. Well, what happens is I had a lot of my friends that, uh, you know, we grew up, we came from dysfunctional families in, in New York City, Philadelphia, and, and other areas. And so we did, this was a mode of survival. We'd run away from home. This is how you made money in addition to other crimes. Um this was the easiest way to make money without the police interacting. A lot of times the police didn't want to get involved in these type of things because it involved very prominent individuals 
And as long as no one called the police, no one, it's one of those don't ask, don't tell um, scenarios. We would consider throwaway kids. So for the most part, many of the times in law enforcement, elected officials, um, even if we uh, periodically one of the kids would have a major emotional breakdown, the neighbors would call the cops, and we would tell law enforcement or other officials. And pretty much they, they dubbed us that we would be dead or in jail by the time we were 18 anyway, so who cares? Uh, we would consider throwaway kids. Uh, and this is unfortunately, it still goes on today. Yes. Like, you know, you look at the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Until they became organized and started demanding justice, uh, I don't always agree with everything how they do things. However, I do respect that they had enough of the BS and, and, and sugarcoating things, and they said, listen, no one's going to take us serious until we take ourselves serious, and then we have to make them take us serious. Well, that's how victims, especially uh, uh, victims of child sex trafficking go. Um, a lot of my friends wind up having horrible lives. My life didn't go the way I thought it would be because getting involved in this thing as an adolescent, and my years were between the years 1976 and 1980, so getting involved in this type of, this is not a natural act for uh, uh, a street tough, non-gay boy from the streets of Philadelphia or the streets of New York or the streets of wherever. This is not a natural act, but this is what you do to survive if you're doing drugs and alcohol and living on the streets. And, you know, these are, these are some of the modes that children do to survive. Uh, you're hungry. There's many times we were so hungry and people say, I would never do that. Well, they, it's, it's easier for them to say because they live behind white picker fences. Right. They were living on the streets in poverty, and they were digging through garbage cans for food just to eat or shelter because it's it's cold. Um, they would look at the world in a different perspective. But when they live, they look at it and say, oh, it never happened to me. And that's good that it never happened to them. Hopefully it never happens to them or anyone they know. But it happens on a regular basis, and I'm not the only person that was victimized by you know this uh, these uh, sordid activities so uh, a lot of people read the paper or they are they're quick to criticize because some of the prominent people that were involved um oh they, they're very dignitary well-respected people in the neighborhood obviously and this is what kind of enabled them to do it so long because they were somebody who was prominent had political connections very wealthy uh, use philanthropy, and we were just some scum from the street yep. that they do whatever they wanted to. And believe it or not, I, I tell a lot of people, our elected officials failed us, law enforcement failed us, child protection services failed us, our schools, academic facilities failed us, and these youth programs failed us because these people, if, if, you know, they, this is how much money and influence they have so if you have a lot of people that are working for the government and this person has influence with, with elected officials that oversee the, the agency or department that you work for, well, you, guess what? If you report it and it doesn't go the way you think it's going to go, your life become very hard and you probably wind up getting fired from your job or punished severely. So a lot of people are like, nah, I'm just going to play stupid. Yep. I, I'm going to look. And, and, and then this just goes on and goes on for decades and, and the victims continue to rack up it's very interesting that if i said 
hey, Penn State got busted doing child molesting, how quickly people would go. Oh, yeah, totally. If I said Catholic priests got so quickly to uh, got were busted child molesting, they'd be, oh, hell, yeah. You know, but, yeah, I say politicians, and people just can't come to grips with it. And it's all about money and power, and we'll get into the, the blackmailing stuff, but the pushback is blows my mind because it's just like why don't we just i understand that there now is being pedophilia is now being used to take people down but what we're seeing is that a lot of these people are being accused of all the sexual assault stuff it's actually true yeah greg i really appreciate your courage and honesty coming forward uh, you said that you've started speaking out in uh, 2011 for people that don't have a background um your testimony was published in the new york daily news in 2012 correct um it was, uh, there was several, uh, it started in 2011 when the Sandusky case broke, mm-hmm. uh, and then there was, it, it kind of went in different directions. Uh, in Philadelphia, there were several, I, I cooperated with the FBI, the uh, U.S. Postal Inspectors, and the U.S. Attorney General's Office, and I named Philadelphia politicians and very prominent people tied to those uh, politicians, and the only thing, the reason they're not in jail is because of statute of limitations. Yeah. Uh, they, they can't, but I reported them, and uh, because I reported them, they were very upset. And in 2012, 2011 going into 2012, there was a lot of, I made national headlines and different things. And Oprah Winfrey, who runs the Dr. Phil show, was in New York, and I, I was all over the news in New York City. Philadelphia, nothing. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Hmm. And here, the, a lot of the people that I named to the, the FBI, the FBI went and talked to them. Of course, they denied it, but they controlled their local news media and their local newspapers. Yeah. So they were out of it. So what happened was, Oprah Winfrey's in New York City. She sees that she reads this article in the New York Daily News, and she's intrigued by it. So she hires these private investigators. They come out. They do some fact findings. They talk to me. And at some point, I fly out to L.A. to do the Dr. Phil show. And when you go on the Dr. Phil show, it's not like you rehearse it before you go on. Pretty much, you don't know what's going to be asked. This is what they told me. It was me and another Sandusky victim. Uh, uh, not the same time ever, but to where, ironically, this victim was also uh, taken from State College and molested in Philadelphia. A lot of people said that Sandusky never traveled to Philadelphia. Well, this victim... Uh, came forward and said, yeah, he took me to Philadelphia many times during, for football games or sporting events and then molested me. But what happened was she reads it. She's intrigued by it. I wind up going to the Dr. Phil show. And these people in Philadelphia that are very prominent and politically connected became concerned. I don't know how they found out that I was going to go to the Dr. Phil show, but they found out. So what they did is uh, initially they when you go to a Dr. Phil show, you, you have that you don't know what questions are going to ask you. You kind of know what questions because based on the interview, right. but you don't really know what is going to be asked. Mm-hmm. And you have 30 seconds to think about it. You can't curse. You can't mention certain people's names that were never charged. And you have less than a minute to answer the question. So there's a lot going through your mind, and keep in mind, a lot I of just, pressure, a lot of pressure, especially if you're not somebody who does I this. For a yeah. living. And uh, so then I'm going through an emotional state because I just broke my silence 
from uh, decades of concealing it and lying about it. Meaning, I, I, people would say, yo, you know, were you doing, like, there was rumors you were doing things with gay guys and all this. And, I, of course, I would deny that, you know, because it's not the mainly thing to talk about. Right. So now I finally decide, and the reason I, the Sandusky case, I broke it and started talking about it was I had a friend, Joey. And Sandusky did some minor things. If you saw the Dr. Phil show, I kind of, he didn't really go all the way with me, but it was, everything he did was a crime with me. Yeah. I had a friend, Joey, that was mentioned when we went to one of these uh, fundraisers that he wind up in, in, in an earlier time going to his Sandusky's house and staying overnight. And when I seen him two days later, he was never the same. And, you know, we used to smoke weed and get high and drink and go out and spray paint and fight skateboarder kids and all. And then he was tell I seen that he was going through depression more so than usual. Right. I mean, we all had different levels of depression because life was just not what we'd hoped it to be. You were thrown into a world of shit. Yeah. And but he was starting to go through depression and uh, antisocial behavior more so than what we're normally doing. Then he started lifting weights and, and just being a bully and doing heavier drugs and shooting up heroin. And so I was like, you know, what's going on? He told me what happened. And, but there's nothing we could do about it, you know, because we weren't going to the cops. We weren't rats. Uh, a lot of times people say, how come you didn't go to the cops? I say, I'll tell you why. Initially, now at some point I get locked up, and I mentioned that on the Dr. Flow show, that while I was locked up, I kind of gave some information to the police because the guy said I broke into his house. and But there was circumstances to that. I just didn't walk mm -hmm. up and pick someone's house at random. Right. But getting back to my friend Joey... Uh, he went through a lot of depression. So Sandusky, it was told to us in the late 80s that Coach Jerry, we didn't know him as Sandusky, we just know him as Coach Jerry, had died of cancer. So you kind of just move on, you know, life goes on. My friend Joey committed suicide because of his depression. Every year oh, it just got... Man. So I, I, you kind of like, you know, all these years go by, and then all of a sudden, 2011, I'm in a bar getting something to eat and socializing with my friends. Pang, Penn State... Jerry Sandusky, and then I'm like, you know, this son of a bitch is still alive. Holy Someone shit. Someone told me he died of cancer. And then, and, and, and for whatever reason. And was it, it was an no, adult that told you that? Was it an adult or another kid? It was a pedophile, a pedophile that we knew that, uh, you know, after 1980, I, I wasn't being sexually targeted. I was getting too old, and they yeah, liked to certain. You aged out. So I was pretty much aged out, but I was getting involved in other crimes and things. Um, and then. I eventually wind up going into the army to get away from this and trying to turn my life around. And when I came back, there was some pedophiles that I was trying to talk to to stop it, you know, because you build these bonds with these pedophiles. It's kind of like people are like, why would you be bonds with people that sexually exploited you? But it's weird, but we had bonds, believe it or not, with some, the casual That's encounters. That's Stockholm syndrome. Is that along the lines of that where you end up? It's a very common thing with trauma. Trauma survivors, there's some, like you're saying, that the bond is tied in, in a way of guilt and shame. They know your secret, and it's it's in a weird way you're able to be honest with your, your person. abusers. Yep. So this this one abuser, Richie Bilstein, told me that, you know, Coach Jerry died. And uh, so now here he goes, fast forward, late 1980s, now fast forward 2011, and, you know, it just hit me like a Mike Tyson punch you don't see coming. Yeah. And... 
you know, it, it's like I started becoming real emotional, like, you know, because a lot of my friends, whether it was St. Dusky or other uh, offenders, we all had grew up not the way we should have grown up, like drug abuse, alcohol right, abuse, right. in and out of jail. Uh, some of my friends wind up uh, being murdered. Some committed suicide. Some committed murder. Uh, many of them, I, I go to the Kensington section of Philadelphia, which is a real depressed section of Philadelphia, and I see my friends that are extremely strung out on drugs. And it's heartbreaking to see this is how many of us have become. And we, I blamed it on these prominent offenders that were, you know, they exploited us, you know, when we were adolescent age. So it, the Sandusky case came, I became very emotional uh, and I started crying and, and I, I wanted to act out violently on some of the people that was involved. I, I totally understand that. And, uh, but I, you know, I have a daughter, I, I got, I got a couple kids and I'm not that person I used to be. So I'm really contemplating should i should i act out violently because i know they're gonna if i go to the to the cops they're gonna cover that up um so what do i do how do i get justice for myself and my friends and and i'm contemplating violence and i ask god and i'm not a man of religion i don't go to church i you know i was never molested by a priest but i just you know if there was a god how did this happen to me right right i get Where that. was it divine intervention for me and my friends so what i, I never really was a, a holy roly church follower so i asked god though because i'm i'm contemplating probably doing extreme violence to someone in particular and i asked for a sign and believe it or not the michael jackson man in the mirror song came on hmm. what and, the? And wow they, that's the song that came on like 30 seconds after like, I'm, like, looking for a sign, like something. And that came on. So I said, well, I don't know. It's ironic that, you know, like Michael Jackson, man in the mirror. But I said, you know what? I'm going to, I need help. And I need professional help because I can't deal with my emotional right. role or what's going on. So there was, a, in, in Philadelphia, there was an organization called Women Organized Against Rape. And here's the thing. Um. I, that was the one that helped victims of sex trafficking. They're like a nonprofit organization that has professional counselors and advocates and all. So the, the I said, I got to go to them for help. So many times I called them when they picked up the phone, I hung up. And then I would go to their office, but I couldn't walk through the door because it's tough for a street tough guy to admit that he was a rape victim. The hardest thing for people in jail is the two biggest concerns people have going to prison is are they going to get raped? And if they get raped, they can't talk about it for, yeah, for tough guys. I get that. Because it's not the, in, in today's society, it's not the manly thing to do. Right. But what happens is many times I go to the door, there's women organized against rape, and I go to pull the door, but then I chicken out like a coward and leave. And I, I remember telling in the news media different, uh, uh, news media sources that it would have been easier for me to get in a boxing ring with Mike Tyson and get my ass kicked than it would to be walking through a door called Women Organized Against Rape and admit that I was a rape victim. That's rough, man. That's rough. I want to get into something because your story, like we've always go, 
How come there's no connection? How come there's nobody coming forward? We're going to get into a lot of that real quick. But I want to talk about where, where does this start? What, when does it first start? And who is the person uh, who gets you into this world? Um, well, it first started in, 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 in before 1976. I was a, I always considered myself a poster child for juvenile delinquency. Now, did you run away from home, or do, do oh, you I, just? I, a, well, not it's so not so much. In 1974 and 1975, I didn't really run away from home, but I was doing other things like smoking weed, drinking, looking at girly magazines, shoplifting, throwing you from school, doing petty crimes. As, like juveniles get involved. In. Yeah, I, I did a lot. Of, I did all that. So I kept getting in, in trouble with uh, Philadelphia Family Court and, and Department of Human Services, which is child protection in Philadelphia. Uh, so my mom was stressed out. My mom and dad divorced. We were kind of growing up in poverty. You and know, you we were the first uh, wave of divorce, right? You were that divorce right around the 70s, 80s started becoming more prominent and it happened to a lot of my friends and it traumatized them before you did like family because of religion you just stuck it out you just like we're gonna do this to the end because we don't want to thank god and then at some point people decided that they didn't need to do that and it was it was traumatizing yeah so so in, in a nutshell what happened was can you guys hear me yeah yeah all right so in a nutshell what happened was you know, my role models back then were mobsters, the uh, warlock motorcycle gang, the pagans. Like, criminal types became my role models because my father figure wasn't really in my life like a father should be. So, to fill that void, these criminal types first came in. So, anyway, uh, through family court, uh, I had to go, uh, you know, they wanted me to go to uh, this program to keep boys out of trouble. It's called the South Philadelphia Boys Club. And that was a program for at-risk boys to stay out of trouble. And um, so that was 1976. And while we're there, we're introduced to what was called these philanthropists. And if, and I didn't know what a philanthropist was then. But yeah. what I was gathered is that this is some guy that's got a lot of money that donates to charity and wants to help, you know, whatever that the cause of that charity is. So... We get, get involved to, to a guy named Mr. Savitz. And um, then the, the second day I'm in there, because I was an extremely street-savvy kid at such a young age. I'm 11 years old. Right. You're, you're surviving. Uh, I'm surviving. I'm not, you know, but I, I'm smart street-wise. I wasn't the smartest book-wise, but street-wise, I would have had a doctorate as a juvenile delinquent. So what happened was, the, uh, the second, like, the first day I go in there, they start talking about this guy, Fast Eddie. And that he has parties and he smoked weed. And uh, then the second day, they're talking about, you know, the guy takes pictures. These are all the kids that are, like, already enrolled little in older, this. A little older than you? Or the same uh, age as you? Some of them same age. Other ones a little bit older. But, they're, but they've been in that South Philadelphia Boys Club. I'm kind of a newbie there. And they've been in that South Philadelphia Boys Club, you know, for some time now. So, so I told him, I said, listen, you know, and, and I, I'm no fag. So, uh, I said, I'm no fag. Can you guys see me? Yeah, we can. There yeah, you are. I, I, so, uh, I'm no fag. You know, I'm not, 
you know, into that stuff. And they said, um, well, yeah, you know, just go to a party, you know, and, and they're going to smoke weed and there's going to be girls and food and alcohol and, you know, porno stuff that you can look at. And so the first time would have been 76. And, uh, and what I do is I go to this party and, you know, I'm 11 years old and, uh, kind of looking at porn and that stimulated me and smoking wacky tobacco. I was a big Cheech and Chong fan and, you know, drinking mad dog and beer and yeah. talking crap with my friends. And, were any uh, of the, um, were any of the people who work at this child protective services or this establishment you at, were they any, a part of this? Were they encouraging no, you to the meet people, these people? The employees, no, the employees, no, hmm. the employees had nothing to do with that. Um, the, uh, but the philanthropist did. So when we go to this house in northeast section of Philadelphia, we go and, uh, you know, there's a pool party. So, we, you know, we're there with these girls, and, and they had girls there that were a little bit older. And I talked a good game, but the girls wanted to get us in the pool. So I said, uh, okay, you know, uh, we'll go skinny dipping with you guys in the pool. And now keep in mind, I'm under the influence of pornography, some minor drugs and alcohol. And so I wind up going to pool and we're wrestling with these older girls. Uh, they weren't adults, but they were like, I'm 11. So I'd say they were about 17, 18, give or take. And now I don't know what I'm doing, Yeah. but I talked a good game back then. So, you know, so, and then the next thing I know, these adult guys come in and these are some of the philanthropists and they come into the pool, but they, they're naked. They're skinny dipping with us. And they start wrestling with us and like kind of rubbing their, their private parts on us and all. And I so I was like, you know, it kind of feels gay. I was telling some of the other kids there, they're like, nah, he's just wrestling. I was like, if it was these girls, sure. Yeah. yeah I'd be nervous. Right. Sure. Like, I'm not gay. What, what's this dude rubbing his, you know, pecker on me for? Right. And that, they were like, nah, yo, it's cool. It's cool. So afterwards, they didn't do anything else. But what they're doing is they were bumping and grinding on us and in the in the pool and they had erections and my guess is they got off because they had stupid looks on their face so that might be an educated guess they were getting off Jeez. and i kind of felt dirty about that so i complained to the other kids they're like yo you know butch because they my nickname on the street was butch right so you're short for butcheroni you're butch don't make a big deal of it i'm like look you know these i think these gay dudes got some gay stuff going on and they try to get off on me so I, even though I was a little high and drunk, you know, I, I wasn't stupid. And uh, so then they told me, they said, oh, don't make a big deal. So initially I kind of stayed away from some of these parties, but all these other kids were getting sneakers and they were going to these trips to, you know, Penn State football games and Wildwood, New Jersey and Atlantic City and to shopping malls. And I'm a kid and I don't have any of that. So then the other kids say, look, you know, uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and just, you know, let the dude, you know, the guy wants to blow you. And I was like, ah, that's kind of fag, man. You know, I'm, I'm not a fag. Right, right, right. right. And they're like, this is no disrespect to gay people. Yeah, but this dude, is we totally life. get that, dude. And so I was like, look, I'm not a fag. And, uh, you know, they're like, no, you know, dude will only give you like a hundred bucks and he wants to take pictures. Uh, so I was like, I don't know. Then one of my friends, we wanted to go to Wildwood, New Jersey. And, so I, I told him, I, I what was in Wildwood, New Jersey? What was there? New, Wildwood, New Jersey is the shore town, and they got these amusement piers. Oh, okay. And it's like a party thing for kids. Okay. Mm -hmm. it, it, 
I don't know what where, what state are you guys in? We're in California. All right, so it, it would be a town that borders the ocean and the beach, and it's got amusement rides. And, Santa Monica Boulevard, there you go. Santa Monica Pier, and all so that. So I think people party. They get on these amusement mm-hmm. rides. They, you know, it's it's a party town, and so they would put us up in motels and, and take us down there. So and then introduce us to their friends and all. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll do it one time. And then one time, starts doing two times, and then before you know it, it's a million times with different people in different areas. You're hooked on the drugs, you're hooked on the money, and it's just because you're on your own, you know, it just becomes a lifestyle. Well, it, it was a lifestyle. Like, we could, we committed other crimes, but here's the problem. When you commit crimes, people call the police, and when the police came, especially in the 70s and, and going into the early 80s, the police were extremely heavy-handed with juvenile criminals. And I always considered myself back then as a general practitioner of crime. So, you know, steal a car, break in a hair, shoplift, whatever. Whatever you had to so, do is survive. And so this was, crime always looks for the point of least resistance. Yeah. So once you got past the whole gay thing, not gay thing, that's where the drugs and alcohol come in. And, and then once you get past all that, it becomes this, with no credit limit, cash cow. It'd be equivalent of an ATM with no credit limit. So you go there, you get 100 bucks or 50 bucks or $40 or whatever. You blow that, you come back and get more. And you blow that, then you go back and get more. And it just becomes this cycle of, um, of, of, of financial stability yep. from these individuals is where you could buy drugs, clothes, party. And it just becomes a sordid lifestyle. You get hooked style. on the hustle. You get hooked on that hustle. Well, well and, and the hustle, that's matter of fact, that's what we called it, street hustling. And Because, you know, if someone said, hey, you want to go out and prostitute, we beat the hell out of you. Yeah. Well, you call your fucking fag, you fucker, and beat the shit. My weapons of choice in the 70s were nunchucks. I was a big <laughs> Bruce Lee fan. So I was pretty good with those nunchucks. So, you know, someone comes up and says, oh, you know, you, you want to prostitute? Shit, we beat the hell out of you and rob you. And I'd be out there with my nunchuck swinging around like uh, I was Bruce Lee or something. I get that, dude. I think it's but important they, for they, for our, our yeah, for they, listeners to know that uh, these allegations that you're describing of the child prostitute and pedophile ring have been uh, confirmed by media reports and emails that have been published by WikiLeaks and FBI documentation of uh, mafia activity and testimony from a congressional committee hearing obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. So this isn't just like one guy's tale this is the you can look into this what uh what greg's talking about is some serious shit yeah well, you, you hear something and, and, and you get to that people watch the sopranos or the godfather and they think they know what the mob's about yeah they don't know anything <laughs> i'm not saying all mobsters were engaged in trafficking children and producing child pornography but this one but there was in philadelphia and i'm sure california had it too there was red light districts where there's porn and drugs. And there's usually in the 70s and 80s, I can't speak about now, but then there was porno places, X-rated movie theaters and live sex shows and dildos and blow-up dolls and all that stuff. But Philadelphia was saturated with them. Atlantic City was saturated with them. New York City, Times Square, was saturated with these places. And inside some of these places were kitty arcades. And what they did is they, they, you know, troubled kids. These arcades were a magnet for troubled juvenile delinquents. 
and we'd hang there, smoke cigarettes, talk shit, go out there, spray paint, or steal a car, smoke, you know. And so these are, so it, it just became this pool to for, for at-risk kids to dialogue with other at-risk kids. And then at some point, you're in the pornography places that are producing child pornography and setting up dates between adults and juveniles, uh, which gets into the human trafficking. But a lot of people tell me the mob would never do that. Absolutely not. I watched The Godfather 20 times. I said, pal, you watched it with closed eyes. Yeah. Because it, but no one would believe me because they think they know the mob because they watched reruns of The Sopranos. People want people want to believe what they've been told. And when you tell them it's all a lie, they go nuts. So you, here we go. So let's get, because this whole thing, the, the politicizing of pedophilia, Okay, Uh, you know, the right believes the left is up to it. The left believes the right is up to it. This Greg connects both of them and they 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 come together through uh, some very interesting stuff, which we've all heard about for a long time. Yeah, I wanted to uh, touch on coming from Philadelphia. One of the people that has been spotlighted and highlighted in this case and continuing as former district attorney for Philadelphia former DNC chair. Hold on. I want to get, before okay. we get into that part, Go for it. I want to talk, I want to start with the Franklin scandal. Uh-huh. So now we're starting on the right and we will move to the left. And the left is very important because this is where all the resistance is coming from. So you, I want to talk about, and I saw an interview you did with somebody else, but a lot of people might not know the Franklin scandal. It is a scandal that happened in the 80s, I believe. The 80s involved the Republican Party which goes all the way up from to George Bush Sr. in the White House. You you are a part of this. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Black Larry? Well, before 2011, I didn't know nothing about no Franklin scandal or anyone by the name of Lawrence King. I wasn't. That was in a different world somewhere else. And people had mentioned it, and I said I don't know anything about Omaha, Nebraska. And Boys Town, I, you know, I was a Philly guy, New York, Atlantic City type guy. So I kind of like, they, they would tell me the conspiracy of silence. I said, that, that was some other kids with somebody else on the other side of the country. I got nothing to do with that meeting. So one of my friends said, Butch, why don't you look at it? And I think that you'll see somebody that looks familiar. So when we look at it and the, and the conspiracy of silence comes on, you got this guy, it looks like a young version of Al Sharpton. All right, go on. That we knew him to be Black Larry. I didn't know his name was Lawrence King. We just knew Black Larry. And Black Larry uh, used to sponsor trips to Eddie Savage, uh, who was a philanthropist at the South Philly Boys Club, to take kids down to Washington, D.C. in the late 70s, early 80s uh, to, you know, kind of see legitimate stuff, museums. Hold on uh, one second, please. Hold on. Is it is the audio stopped too? The audio is going. Go on. Sorry about that. So that was Black Larry, and uh, so everything was legitimate. Like I didn't know uh, his involvement in anything until 1979. 1979, Eddie Savage says that uh, he's going to attend a party on behalf of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was running for president or considering running for president of the United States. And they were having this wine and cigar thing in Washington, D.C. And Eddie Savage wanted to go with a few other people and asked me if I came down. He was going to introduce me to a few people and I can come back to Philadelphia with a few dollars in my pocket. 
So money's money. I'm, keep in mind, at this point, uh, I'm well into the human trafficking end. Right, of right. My mind is demented. My life is bizarre. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. So You're deep in the hustle. I'm deep in the hustle. And I, I could care less about what people think. So I wind up going down there, and I'm interacting with people and uh, going in and out of rooms, making money and turning tricks for cash. Uh, I remember that the, the party, I wasn't like, I went down there to drink and smoke weed. That was my thing. I didn't really shoot up heroin or do coke. I can't do coke because I've become extremely violent. Right. So if they get weed or coke, uh, you ever watch Beavis and Butthead? Yeah. Beavis becomes Corn Julio. Yeah. It's too much sugar. Yeah. Well, that would be if I, you give me coke or, or speed, I become Corn Julio, uh, but a violent Corn Julio. I get it. I so get that. So what happened was I, I smoked weed and drank, and you know I was cool with that. But they ran out of weed. So what happened was I go out, and Eddie Savage says he's going to give me $40 to you know, go buy a bag of weed. And so I meet these other kids, and I say, all right, no problem. And um, while I'm standing there in the living room area getting ready to get money to go out and go cop some weed in the black neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., there's Eddie Savage, Richie Bilstein, this other congressman um, that's uh, from Pennsylvania. You got a guy named Denny, and then you got a guy, then Black Larry, of course. And the guy, Denny, comes up and says, you know, he starts talking about the Eagles games in the movie Rocky with Sylvester Stallone. Right. And uh, he and the Philly cheesesteaks. He wanted a, a patch cheesesteak from Philly. So I'm like, whatever, because you know, a lot of times you get small talk by these perverts that want to get down your pants. And I tell a lot of people, you know, today I kind of look like Al Bundy from Marriage with Children. Right. But in the 70s, I was Vinnie Barbarino from Welcome Back, Cotter. I get that, dude. We were all a lot better back in the day. Yeah, a lot better looking back in the day. women ruined my life, and here I am. <laughs> You're right. one of the sweat I, I had a quite few. I had a quite a few Peg Bundys in my life, and here I am. I get it, but dude. The, so what happens is, you know, this guy's trying to make small talk. I'm like, whatever. I just want to go buy a bag of weed and, and get high. So I go with these other kids. They finally give me $40. The conversation between me, Black Larry, and Denny, and Eddie Savage, and the other kids uh, lasted about, I'd say, between 5 and 15 minutes. And then the guy said he's going to come to Philadelphia and buy me a Philly cheesesteak or whatever. This is Denny. Denny later on becomes Dennis Hastert. But we only knew him as Denny and only met him for about five to 15 minutes. And he was in the area socializing with Black Larry and other. So you saw Black Larry and Dennis Has. What's Dennis's last name? Haster. It was Dennis Haster. Haster. Dennis Haster. But I, I, I didn't know his name at the time. A lot of times when you interact with these guys uh, that are casual encounters, they don't tell you their name and right, where they're from. Right. They, hey, my name's Bob. My name is this. But Dennis Haster, he wind up just referring to himself as Denny. And, uh, so whatever, I'm like, whatever, dude, you know? And, um, so I go into this neighborhood to cop the weed, but DC was a racial town. And as I'm walking out there with these other kids, we go into these black guys and try to buy some weed and they beat the shit out of us and rob us for, for what we had plus the $40. And that's probably what I remember most about that DC trip. But right before I got my ace kicked by these black, uh, weed drug dealers, 
and, and like and the ass whooping was like something Mike Tyson would give you. Right. And imagine like about six Mike Tysons beating the shit out of you. Yeah. When you try to stop some weed, that's what happened to me. Yeah. I remember I was kind of pretty beat up for a couple of days after that. But right before I got the $40 to buy the weed, this is where I encountered Black Larry at one of these after parties. And at the after parties, he's there. I don't see him do anything, but he's there with known sex offenders. And he's the one that arranged it. And then you got Denny that later on is Denny Astor. And, uh, you know, so that kind of shows you. Now, do I know, did I see any kids being tortured or held against their will? I didn't hear any kids at that in particular um, social event or after party event say anything like that. Pretty much the kids were messed up like I was. And, yeah, you want to party, you go hustle, make some money, you meet these guys, they blow you, take pictures or whatever. And, and life goes on. Did you so, end but, up going to the White House? No, I never went to the White you House. You never were at the White House because that was no, a big they, part I, of that Franklin scandal. No, because I probably would have tried to steal something or get my magic marker and graffiti something. No, I respect that. So, so dude, if I would have went to the White House, I always had those magic markers, and I would have drew, like, a mustache on, on George Washington's fucking face or something. <laughs> so I was one of those fucked up kids. So... They wouldn't have brought me to the White House. So Larry King later gets convicted, not the Larry King. Hello, Hollywood, but the black Larry King gets convicted. There is, uh, There are witnesses that see Larry King talking to not only Ronald Reagan, but as well talking to um, George Bush Sr. George Bush Sr. Later, later gets busted having underage prostitutes within the White House, okay, and then, um, now, so now, so now, um, we get now with this whole thing with, uh, 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 George Bush is now trying to, everybody's trying to say, oh, he, he pinched these ladies butts. He pinched these ladies butts. I think that's just a cover up for, uh, this stuff coming out about him being a, uh, a, a pedophile. But then now, so that's the Republican side. Now what is what you want to talk about, which is. The Democratic side connects. And this is where we've talked about this on the show before, where this is simply, dude, stop looking at sides. They're two heads of the same snake. Stop getting into D's. Stop getting into R's. And just realize they're all working together. Yeah, this is where the connection to Philadelphia and you being from there is very fascinating to me. Uh, So we were saying a former district attorney for Philadelphia, the former DNC chair, the former mayor of the city of Philadelphia from 1992 to 2000 and former governor of Pennsylvania from 2003 to 2011. We're talking about Ed Rendell. Uh, could you explain uh, in just a briefness about about Mr. Rendell? And your interactions with him? Well, I, what I got, I got to be careful because of civil liability issues. He right. Was never Whatever you're comfortable with saying. Uh, I, let's just say... With Allegedly. law enforcement, meaning the FBI, I shared detailed information hmm. uh, with them. However, the statute of limitations prevents anything from happening. What I could say, that did he know these individuals? Did he enable them? Yes. Did he know them? Yes. Were they part of his political fundraisers and, and helping them generate money and interacting with kids? Yes. Uh Ed Vendell was running for district attorney in the um, late, in like 76, 77. 
So Eddie Savage, Sam Rappaport, Richie Bassianos, and others were these philanthropists that would get behind him and generate money through uh, wine and cigar events and social events and political fundraising events. And, uh, you know, Ed Vendell was good friends with, and, and it doesn't make, like you would think a guy running for district attorney would keep away from a mobster who's, who's under investigation for trafficking child pornography. Right. And that was Richie Bassiano and a guy named Robert D. Bernardo. We knew him as DB. These are Gambino associated mobsters. DB is a capo in the Gambino crime family. And he's the one that runs all these porno places, you know, from New York city to Philadelphia to Delaware to, you know, all over the place, New Jersey. And, Richie Bassiano's his business partner. And then Sam Rappaport is the real estate slumlord that uh, it, it, that owns, the, he's the landlord to the, where these porno places are, are, are residing in. And um, Ed Vendell's friends with all of them. So, and then at some point, you know, uh, not getting into uh, what I can share you with you is that he was well aware uh, Eddie Savage, uh, it was well known by law enforcement and elected officials that these porno places uh, that were within walking distance of City Hall, Philadelphia, were under investigation for trafficking child pornography and kids were being prostituted out of these porno places. And there was multiple pornography places in Philadelphia within walking distance of City Hall. Jesus. Uh, the, the police department clearly knew what was going on and they had been involved in numerous raids and think about it you guys i don't know if your parents or you 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 have children or grandchildren uh but here you go you have in philadelphia it was like the engines running the cars driving down the street but no one's uh behind the wheel right have who would put pornography establishments with live sex shows and movie theaters and dildos and blow-off dolls, who would put a kitty arcade and something like this and, and, and give it licenses and permits to operate? Yeah, who like agrees on that? Who lets that fucking happen, man? It's unbelievable. And now this Ed Randall, he actually got busted. He was actually a part of uh, the Haiti well, a connection tying into all that. So a top strategist for Rendell's 2006 re-election campaign was no one else but Tony Podesta. And for any of us that are in these realms that know a little bit about Pedogate in general, that's a name that keeps on popping up in all the different circles. Friends with Dennis. Yep. So in 2010, the, the Haiti earthquake, Rendell was also reported to have been involved with a child trafficking incident Uh and he was instrumental in pushing for the illegal removal of dozens of children out of Haiti in the days following the massive quake. And there's actually a picture, if you find it, the disobedient media, there's actually a picture of Randall hustling Haitian children off a plane. Yeah, it's, quote, a crucial intervention was made <coughs> by Ed Rendell, the governor of Pennsylvania, who worked his high-powered contacts in the White House, State Department, and Homeland Security. The WikiLeaks emails sent during this crisis revealed that behind-the-scenes discussion of Rendell's Haitian efforts, Hillary Clinton's aides characterized Rendell as extremely motivated to remove the children from Haiti as quickly as possible. It's fucking disgusting. 
and just savage. Like, like you see a, an incident like this and you're like, hey, this is the time to make our move. And as we know that uh, Laura Silsby of um, of the of the uh, Habitat for Haiti, I believe is a group who worked for the Clinton Foundation, was not only arrested, she was tried, convicted and thrown in jail. And uh, what with the connection to, in fact, the Clinton Foundation and a gentleman right now. And I can't look it up on my phone uh, right now, but he was just uh, convicted in Miami. He was part of that group that got arrested with Laura Selsby, hmm. who uh, was, in fact, convicted recently and found guilty of child molestation. He was part of that group as well. And actually... Ed Randall, according to this disobedient article, disobedient media article, was so aggressive that people around him were getting very nervous about what he was doing, allegedly, and mm-hmm. that they needed the Clintons to do an intervention because he was so out of control. Uh, did you have any interactions with Ed yourself at any point? Uh, let's just say me and him were in the same building. Uh, when you say interactions, I mean, there was plenty of interactions that were for political fundraisings and doing this and that. But there was a certain inter- interaction in 1978 before he became district attorney that I shared with law enforcement. But I won't get into that because I, I don't need to be sued. No, nope, I respect that. I respect Let's just that. say that the law enforcement are clear of what my allegations are with Ed Rendell before he became filled out, right before he became filled out, he just Hold on one second, Greg. What was this? Uh, okay, so um, we just, you were in the same building with Ed. Uh, thank you for dealing with the technical difficulties. It's okay. This this happens. This is this is podcasting. Um, what did you want to get into with him? So, Ed, while researching uh, your story, um, I came across something very fascinating that involved uh, you coming across certain very... Uh, sensitive material in the in the case of uh, films. I was wondering if you'd be able to expand on that and talk about it. Well, that happened after after 1980. I was just getting too old. I was getting out of their range age range. They they liked adolescent boys. So now I'm becoming 16. Uh, I, you know, extremely savvy criminal wise. Uh, I was extremely tough, and I didn't have a lot of fear. So at the time, the people that ran these pornography places, the Gambino crime family, uh, you had, uh, you know, a guy named Tony Trombetta, you had uh, um, Richie Bassiano, Robert DiBernardo, and others. And they were looking for young, street-tough guys to kind of, you know, run guns and run drugs and, uh, you know, protect their interests from other criminal types that was there. Because a lot of times in these porno places, you had pimps and drug dealers and large groups of juveniles, we used to call them rope packs, robbing people. And so there was a lot of degenerates of society coming there trying to wreak havoc in Gotham City. And our job was, in addition to running guns and drugs and this and that and fencing stolen property, is to be the muscle behind their hustle. So in 1980, I believe it was more 81, um, we would go to uh, this place in New Jersey and they would bring uh, like kind of questionable pornography. And usually it was bestiality films or something to that effect. Right. And other pornography places. And the guy would come down 
from his guy's name was Richie, and he would come down to uh, from from New York and North Jersey down to South Jersey, and then we'd meet him in the parking lot at his diner. He'd open his trunk, and we'd take him, put it in our trunk, and take it to Philadelphia. And then my job, part of my job, which was kind of I was, uh, you know, whatever they needed you to do, you did. So they 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 told me to come in, and it, this, when we talk about film, we're talking like eighteen millimeter, sixteen millimeter film, like large reels of this stuff. Right. We so we so my job was to put it on. Uh, they had a place at Twelfth and Chess, Twelfth uh, and Arch. Uh, there was a like a big warehouse, and you put it in there, and they kind of run it through this machine, and it, it projects the, uh, on the, on the wall an image, and it runs the whole reel. So you can see if there's any imperfections. And usually it was like guys fucking like a, 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 a uh, fucking a chicken in the ass and shit like that. And uh, which is sick in, in itself. Right. Occasionally you'd find some kiddie porn, but there's one in particular thing. And I believe it, it could have been 82, but I believe it was 81. There was a snuff film. Oh, uh, and the man. snuff film's not this fucking a, pisses a, me a, off. A, a, a snuff film is kind Now keep in mind, I'm beyond my abuse years and now I'm just this general practitioner of crime associated with the Gambino crime family and these pornography establishments and but I, and I, I'm not even 18 yet I, I believe I was uh, probably 16 going on 17 or somewhere around there I believe I was 17 so what happened was I see this and it bothers me and it's it, it, it clearly it's children it, it's like a, a, a kiddie porn thing but now, but the kids get murdered in the end. So I start complaining about it because that bothered me. Yeah. The, when I go and complain, I complain to this guy, Fat Chucky Smith, who was uh, uh, this motorcycle gang mob associate. And I start complaining to him and a few other people about this thing. And they're telling me it's special effects. And, you know, in, in my life living on the streets, I've seen a lot of violence. And I've seen a lot of dead people. And this was not that. This was yeah. no spec. Of course. This, you know, like kids being having sex and didn't get mauled by pit bulls and, uh, you know, other things. Kids being drowned and kids being run over by cars Fuck. and kids being choked to death. Like, this is real. This is real shit. So I, um, I started complaining. Then they told me, shut the fuck up and, you know, you know don't make a big stink about it. And one of the mobsters that was involved. And the porno place was an extremely violent mobster. His name was Roy DeMeo. And DeMeo was kind of not business partners, but he ran porno places too under the Gambino crime family in partnership with this guy, Robert DiBernardo. And we knew Robert DiBernardo as DB. And so rumor comes up that DeMeo's pissed off at me for fucking crying like a bitch. So when Mad DeMeo's, at you. Mad at you. Mad because I complained about it. Heaven forbid. Now, is this Ed Rendell, the mayor? That mayor? Or is it a no, different Ed mayor? Rendell didn't have nothing to do okay, with Okay, that. okay, okay, okay. My apologies. Roy DeMeo got pissed off. Okay, I, okay. Ed mm-hmm. Rendell had nothing to do with that. Okay, okay, gotcha. Uh, he's a, I'm not saying that he, he's not a sordid individual. I totally understand. But he had nothing to do with that. Right, okay. So, uh, the, um, so Roy DeMeo. It was his name, and okay. he was pissed off. So I kind of said, like, you know, if, if Paul Castellano finds out about this shit, you know, we were kind of told, I, I thought was 
you know, under the impression that no one's supposed to fuck around with this shit. And so they say, don't make a big deal, blah, blah, blah. At the time, Roy DeMeo was plotting. Uh, this is before John Gotti. Roy DeMeo was a big violent, he had a violent mob crew in the Gambino crime family. And he was a capo with the Gambino crime family. And he was contemplating killing Paul Casolano and taking over the mob. Right. This is before John Gotti. Um, so they, there was animosity between the two. And they, Paul Casolano, there was a, a lot of law enforcement pressure regarding kitty porn and kids hanging around prostituting. So he kind of said, you know, keep these kids the fuck out of these porno places, and I don't want to see no fucking kitty porn because I'm not going to jail for kitty porn. Right. And the rule of thumb between a lot of criminal types is that they're associated with the mob or anything else. You can go to prison for murder, drugs, guns, whatever. You don't go to prison for fucking kitty porn. Yeah, it's going to be rough. And, yeah, you, you know what I mean? If you kill someone, that's okay. You run drugs and guns or whatever, that's okay. But if you're uh, trafficking kitty porn, well, that's frowned upon, believe it or not. Yeah. And uh, so this was going on. So when rumor comes up in 81, uh, now going in 82, that uh, Rui DeMeyer's a little pissed off at me. I, you know, it's time for me to get the fuck out of Dodge because I'm going to wind up on the side of a milk car. Right, right. Wow. So what I did is I gave Roy DeMeo going away fucking present because I was getting in and out of trouble. Right. And I was about to go. I was getting so much trouble that I, I, that the law enforcement it was fed up with me. And keep in mind, I'm 17 years old. Right. But I'm out there doing stuff, and, and I get locked up in Jersey. And if I'm found guilty, it's possible that I could do three to five years in prison. And the prison I would go to is Rollway State Penitentiary. Damn. So for a kid... That was, uh, you know, 17, I'm tough, but, you know, state penitentiary, that's the big time. Right. Everything else besides that was juvenile detention centers, you know, and these other juvenile uh, facilities that deal with troubled boys. But going to Rollway State Penitentiary is the big house. So Ronald Reagan is the president now. Now it's 1982. Hmm. And he's doing a program with kids that are at risk. Instead of going to prison, they can enter the military. So I see that as, so someone came up and said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And I said, let me think about it. Bubba, G.I. Joe. Yeah. Bubba, G.I. Joe. I think I'll go with fucking G.I. Joe. And you joined I, the military and that's how you got out. And that's how I got out. Wow, man. Greg, I, I got to be honest with you, man. I'm so thankful you came on. Uh, a re- final things that and final question, then we'll let you go. Are you worried uh, for your safety at all talking about this stuff? Nah. They, they, a lot of the guys that do anything that dangerous. I mean, my job gets threatened. I work for, you know, the city of Philadelphia. So occasionally certain politicians say I shouldn't be talking about this. But and you should. I think, you know, uh, no, you should. And my thing is, yeah, you should be talking about yes. this. And, and, and it, it always, uh, you know, why would any politician, because keep in mind, Ed Rendell and others are very influential in the city of Philadelphia with the political circles. Yeah. And and the philanthropists that are still alive that I mentioned reported to the FBI is still influential. So they don't like their names being put out there. And they'll do whatever they can to discredit right, it or right. my, I like harder. 
Right. And I remember a couple of people said, look, you got to be careful because you can lose. I, as far as if someone comes up to me with some shit, they better fucking kill me because yeah. guess what? I'm going to do what I got to do to survive. And even though I'm a nice guy today, I wasn't always a law abiding citizen. So violence to me is, you know, that to me, that's that's that's, you know, that was my life. Right. Violence and is not the well, answer until it's the only answer. Well, it's like this. Am I trying to avoid it? Sure. Yeah. But if you back a rat up into the corner, it's going to fight. Yep. And, and 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 so don't back me up in the corner with violence. Now, but they're not going to come because the guys that were the violent guys are long dead. Hmm. And so now what you have is you have the, the, the pencil neck prominent individuals that have political friends and all that. And they're the ones that are left. And but here's the thing with that. They. You know, they, they're not going to come at me and threaten me with violence because they know I'm going to respond violently. So they're going to come out and, and, and next thing you know, I'm unemployed for being 30 seconds late for work or some shit like that. That's what's going to happen. Well, and I hope. I, oh, well, you know what? I'll, I'll wind up fucking someone. Well, you know, I hope it doesn't happen. And I can't thank you enough. Yeah, Greg, well, we appreciate your honesty. And we you. appreciate your honesty. Anything we could ever do for you, we are more than willing to help you out in any way possible. And I hope that people hear your message. And I see you're popping up at more and more places. The community is strong, and we uh, support everything you've done and your bravery for coming out. And uh, thank you so much for spending uh, uh, Monday with us telling us your story. Uh, you guys take care. Greg, you have a great day. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Greg. Man, that was crazy, right? That was heavy, man. But uh, thank you guys for listening. Some of you guys might be, uh, you know, the YouTube video is going to be put together the best it can, and all that stuff. I mean, fuck, man, what a crazy ass fucking story. Oh man, what a crazy story. It is now time for. So I strongly suggest that you wake the fuck up. You filthy animal. Aaron, thoughts? I mean, it's incredibly sad that that's going on. Does know. it does it open your mind that maybe there is something going on? Because I know that you're not necessarily a pedo gay guy, but the connection to a lot of these DNC high ups, does it make that possibly something could be going on? It doesn't matter who they work for. If they did this, they should be held accountable and right. thrown in jail. I agree with Aaron. Yeah. Ryan. That's uh this is a fucking bummer ass episode, but it's unfortunately this is the truth. This is what's coming to light and this is just one of many victims out there. And I'm I don't know. I'm, uh, I don't like doing these episodes, dude. But it's we got to not... get you got to get the word out cuz you know there's kids, man. Kids are being hurt. Kids are lo- looking Kansas, man. 80 foster kids disappeared nobody knows where they are yeah why are we fighting why are people calling us crazy people when all we're trying to do is like dude something's going on with these fucking kids man and we got to protect them and these these i would like to do stuff about like the podcast we did last night bobby lee i'd love if every podcast was fun like that yeah i think what greg's doing is important because 
it, it will encourage others and maybe inspire others that are too afraid to stand up and speak to just to go ahead and voice their unfortunate experience. You want someone to come forward? You got it. Greg Buccioni is the guy who stepped forward and said he saw, he saw, he he he, he witnessed it. He went through it. Now, not not all these guys did he do stuff with it, but he saw him there with the people doing it. And you know what, man? What's the old saying in recovery? You hang out in a barbershop, eventually you're going to get a haircut. Yeah, you don't have to live in fear and uh, shame and guilt. You can, um, if something fucked up has happened to you in any situation, you can uh, come forward and talk to someone. Um, like like he said, he was on the place of doing some extreme violence, and I'm glad he didn't because now he's on the other side of the, the fence. So. Oh, man, really fucking wrong, hard thing to... Um... Tune in next week. We got a really good episode coming for you guys. Oh, well, yeah, man. That is going to be Let's one of the best song. things we've ever done. Let's see if we got any new fucking. Just theme you, song. You want to do it? Yeah, okay, you wind well. it. Are yeah. you okay, dude? Yeah, I'm fine. I need a, I need a hug. I need a <laughs> hug. Uh, guys, we are we are doing our best to um, take care of you guys and to uh, to basically be um, on. If you guys are in the L.A. area, uh, come out to Comedy Chaos. We'll uh, laugh it up. Come out to Comedy Chaos. We'd love to see you. Uh, we're thankful for your support. That was a dark episode. We didn't. Li- it's hard, but it needs to be done. And if you know people don't believe you when you say this shit, have them listen to the episode. Uh, Ryan, I love you to death. Thank you for doing so much hard work on this. Guys, check out the Patreon. We got a new episode about to go up. That is going to be insane and we appreciate you and we will see you next week we got a great episode we'll talk to you soon thanks for listening tinfoil hat